and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and this is part two of my interview with Aaron Sullivan about his experiences. Um, I would call them prophetic experiences. <laughs> that We're going to call them something different probably by the end of this, but if this is your first time tuning in, listen to part one. I'm interviewing a man who um, had an experience where he was having deep religious experiences, hearing voices and visions, and is now no longer a believer. I don't really want to tell you any more than that because I want to get into the story. But if you haven't listened to part one, I would say listen to part one. So Aaron, welcome back to part two. It's good um, to be here. We're going to get into some pretty uh, honest conversations about things. I asked before if there's anything uh, that you don't want to talk about, and you were pretty open. So I am going to ask about some Mormon shame stuff. So mm-hmm. we've kind of talked this through. If you have little ones uh, in the room, just be mindful because we're just going to have a very frank conversation because like I said on the first episode, it's really important to me to have people out there here that they're not alone. And I actually think that Aaron's experience is more common than people realize. And and Aaron believes that as well. And so hopefully if people hear this, they can understand that they're not the only ones that have kind of experienced things this way. So Aaron, welcome back. In our last episode, we were talking about how you're at BYU, you're in love with your girlfriend on campus, you're walking around trying to understand things, about ready to go on a mission, and you're hearing voices from God. God is talking to you through prayer, an actual audible voice, not like an imagined whispering, but an audible voice. And you just told your girlfriend and she was sympathetic and understanding and open-minded to it. Then, but you said something, and this is where I want to start this episode. You said, but I didn't fit the mold completely. So... God is let's 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 start there. What is God at this time talking to you about? At this point in time, God is starting to talk to me about my life ahead, uh a little bit about what it might look like and choices that I need to make, where my career is going to go just in terms of not so much like this is the job you're going to be doing, but this is the kind of life you're going to have. And there's a purpose to it. And it wasn't too far forward in terms of, you know, really pinning dates in the future. It was more like I was on some kind of pathway in life or vector, and God would be telling me, these are some things that are going to come next. So you need to make certain kinds of decisions. You need to stay focused on this experience you're having with me, God, because, uh, the, the longer we do this together, the more your future is going to roll out in front of you and make sense. And I'm going to start asking you to do things that are more challenging and harder, but I'm also going to tell you more about this future so that you're more prepared for it, uh, so that you can have more confidence in the decisions you're making. And, uh, you know, there's some rewards in this for you, even though it's hard. You know, and God would tell me I was special. I'm jumping ahead just a little bit uh, to say this, but not just a few months further forward into that next summer, God told me that I was one of the most intelligent people on the planet, that I was more intelligent than Albert Einstein, explicitly Albert Einstein. <laughs> like the only genius, one of the only geniuses you know at the time. As it's a, like As a matter of comparison, you know, and that I shouldn't tell anybody about this, but that, you know, basically, Aaron, you need to know this. You need to accept these things about yourself. This is real. These are the little evidences of it. Here's how you can prove that you're this smart. Here's the ways in which it matters. Here's And like, 
so that fed a certain degree of what in hindsight to me now feels like you know, building up my confidence that this experience was somehow legitimate and I was starting to accept myself in this regard. I would look back on it now as as a piece of that. But I also think that there's an aspect of this kind of religious experience that can start to gear people into a form of narcissism. I think it's a matter of sense-making of one's experience if they think that they're having this special divine experience and God is talking to them. Well, this must have certain implications or meaning. And I think... You know, I think uh, I was beginning to accept that this was probably real and things that God would tell me in some cases would serve as, you know, evidence that, you know, God would offer me these little tests, these little scenarios. I'm going to tell you about this. I'm going to explain that. I'm going to tell you what's about to happen and then it will. So you can accept this, Aaron. And um, I think the basic significance of what I'm trying to say here in my narrative is things were intensifying and I was accepting them and they were also getting weirder and a little bit more, you know, off the edge. It was going from something like a little bit more quiet, contemplative experience in nature, more on that end of the spectrum that was, you know, that I was uneasy with, but it was a little bit more peaceful to something that was getting quite animated. Yeah, and I want to talk about what God's asking you to do, but let's also talk about, because I think this is important, I always kind of am flippant about this. When I see Mormon men, I'm like, oh, Mormon men, they have a porn addiction. That's just who they are. That's who Mm -hmm. we are as a people. Mm -hmm. And that upsets so many people because it's such a wound for us, for men and for women. Uh, It's just such a wound in the LDS perspective. And where I think the LDS, you and I, suffer more than my polygamous friend groups is we have this doctrine of polygamy and sex and marriage and relationships that exist, but we're not supposed to live it here. Mm-hmm. And so at least polygamists are living that doctrine out in the open. And so they're trying to ask those questions, I, I would say more outwardly in some ways, but we are trying to make sense of sex and relationships and romance in the context of a monogamous relationship with the potential of polygamy later on. And that mm-hmm. does some really interesting things to our brain. Absolutely. So how are you understanding all of this stuff? Like, are you sinning? Are you masturbating? Are you, uh, I'm not your bishop, so you don't have to answer any of that. But like most boys at BYU are struggling with this issue. And I imagine, is God talking to you about that? Uh, yeah, but um, it, to answer that question, let me first say, really, the only thing I'm doing at this point that's, you know, in dodgy territory for your average LDS Mormon is I'm making out with my girlfriend a lot, but it's just a lot of kissing, you know. That's not to say that I'd always been perfect in this regard or anywhere near it. I was in the seventh grade. I was walking through a public library, just wandering around after school. The The junior high school that I went to was right across the street from the public library. And so I'm hanging out in the library, supposed to be studying, but I'm bored and I'm wandering around. And like wonder of wonders, there is an aisle in the corner of this library. And this is not in Utah. Uh, <laughs> is all about human sexuality. And there is a copy of The Joy of Sex. And I'm like, whoa, I got to check this out, right? Uh, this was not something that was talked about in my family. You know, I, I would say my mother's experience of talking to us about it was pretty much, you know, it was, it was, it was a terrifying topic. And my father did take me aside for a chat somewhere around this point in time. But it was like one hour. It was kind of dry. He'd lived a really 
you know, over the edge life when he was younger, uh, prior to converting. That's a, that's a whole interesting story into itself. And so he wasn't afraid of having the discussion, but I think, I think it had to be negotiated to a certain extent in his mind because he didn't know what it was like to grow up as a Mormon child. He was a convert from a really rough background. So he didn't have that frame of reference and it was probably negotiated somewhat with my mom. How much are we really supposed to talk about this? Well, and he probably, if the church is a stabilizing element in his life, you know, doubts the veracity of his experience with it. So maybe he saw some good in the Mormon way of thinking. Yeah, I think he did. And when I've talked to him about it in hindsight, he said he felt like there were certain things where he just took my mom's lead on this. Uh, He wasn't sure it was the right thing to do, but he knew how broken his background was. And the reason this matters is, like, I, I didn't have anything to suggest to me how graphic this could get. I I certainly was feeling those impulses as a kid, you know, before that time arrived. I think the first time I remember something like that, really, you know, sort of an intense impulse that was like that. I was probably 10, somewhere around there. But I find this book and I open it up and I just start flipping through it. And there's naked people and they're doing all these interesting things. And the book is, you know, unapologetic about all of it, right? It's, it's not, and and, like, I couldn't figure out how a public library (laughs) could house something like this. And so sure enough, I had to go to the library a lot over those next few weeks and months. I wasn't going to check that book out of the library, but I was going to spend a lot of time studying. And the book was, the book talked about masturbation pretty frankly. And so one day, during this time period, um, I just decided to try it, and it's shocking to me. And then, like most kids, once they find this, or many kids, you know, suddenly you just can't stop doing it. And then it was only after that that I started to realize what it was that I was doing and that it was wrong in Mormon standards. So there was no shame about it at first, but... I knew I shouldn't be looking at pictures of naked people talking about sex. <laughs> I knew that, right? But I didn't realize that that specific activity with oneself was wrong. Did I have an inkling that I was probably doing something I shouldn't be? Yeah. But did I know what the standard consequences were and the path to repentance and the gravity of it by the environment I grew up in? Not really. And so, you know, I'm doing it for a while and then we're prepping to go on a youth temple trip. And of course, you have to interview and this question comes up, do you masturbate? And it was right in there with the law of chastity. It was asked as a follow-up question. And the bishop I had at the time was a really nice dude. Um, he didn't really, I don't think he took any pleasure in this discussion at all. He tried to normalize it to the extent I think he could with the boys around him. The older boys, like my older brothers that had this guy as a bishop, headed off to a college of their missions, had stories of this guy being really easy on them about this. Um and telling them it was pretty normal and they just needed to work at it. Um, But I just lied uh, in in the interview process. I said I didn't do it. And then I would go to the temple and I would feel, I would feel this anxiety that these ordinances were not legitimate or I was staining the temple somehow or I was driving the spirit away and I was selfish about it. And I worried that, you know, people's ordinances were being performed illegitimately and they didn't count where I was in there involved, but I didn't stop and kept this up for a few years. And I had moments where I was just about to go tell my bishop 
And then my dad became the bishop. Oh my gosh. And then even then I was like, all right, I can talk to him about this. I can do it as I sometimes this would develop to a degree of guilt and shame and self-loathing. And I felt like I just couldn't stop. There were times when I fantasized about like not having genitals or, you know, what if they got cut off or something like that? So I just wouldn't feel this anymore. And I didn't follow through on any of that. I just remember that being this this really intense sadness and frustration and anxiety and guilt. Like, why can't I stop doing this? And, you know, what extremes do I need to be willing to go to to make this stop? And, of course, you read those scriptures about, you know, pluck your eye out, you know, things like that, right? So, yeah. So, you know, there was a degree to which I contemplated that as a teenager. And this is in the mix of everything I, you and I talked about earlier, which was I didn't take most of this all that seriously. But, man, it's strange to me now how willing I was to just beat the shit out of myself on these topics for not having accepted all the rest of those things very much. And then at some point, um, I was, you know, I was a heavy computer user as a little kid, and I got on the Internet early <laughs> A good friend of mine and I discovered once you were on the internet, well, actually, this was pre-internet. We were doing this on bulletin boards, but, you know, you could find a lot of pornography back then if you knew where to look. <laughs> and it was free. And, of course, my parents were not, it's not like today where, you know, a lot of Mormon families will say the computer needs to be out in the open and you got to police it really hard and all the rest of it. It was just this thing that dweebs did. So, oh, we, we had a collection and that was the coolest thing about, you know, bulletin boards and the internet and high-end graphics cards you could buy at the time. One day, I was up in our household office looking at uh, looking at porn, just still porn, and my mother was vacuuming. And she popped open the door to the office, and she saw what I was looking at. And I did what I could to like shut it off right away and hide it, but she knew what she saw. And over the next few hours, what ensued was this terrible back and forth tirade all over the house with periods of silence and then periods of yelling and sadness and tears uh, with her. And then my dad got home and um, my siblings were mostly gone from the house at this point. I'm the youngest, so it was mostly between me and them. But I can remember at one point sitting in my room, the door was shut, my mom cracked it open and had, you know, two or three more minutes things to say with my dad just standing there staring at me, feeling, I was just feeling so humiliated and so awful and like I was the worst person in the world. And my mom in this, you know, in her primary voice said, Aaron, have you been masturbating? I don't feel bad about it now. I didn't feel bad about it then, but there was something about my mom's primary voice saying that, <laughs> that just, uh, like, it just broke something. Uh, and, you know, within an hour, I was down in my in my house house's basement in the little office my dad had constructed where he would have people over as bishop to interview them so he could do this from home. And I'm telling him my story and what's going on. And yeah, dad, I've been doing this. And, you know, for the life that he led, he was really cool about it, but it was super embarrassing. And he was not of the mindset of, you know, you just try your best. He was more willing to condemn it and say it was bad, but he was also willing to say there are way more boys coming to talk to me about this and men than what you realize. But Aaron, it's bad. You can't go to the temple. You can't do these other things if you don't stop. You have to stop. Well, what did you feel when he said that? 
Uh, well, you know, it it took me from wandering around feeling all this guilt and shame, but I couldn't bring myself to talk to him to like, well, here I am and we're talking. You know, I'm I'm in the middle of all this terrible pain, so like, I am gonna do this, right? Like, I have been suffering for long enough. This is a miserable experience. It 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 I it, it stopped being a matter of willpower whether or not I was gonna do it. <laughs> That's that's how things tend to work with me when I change my life is I don't I don't really do much of anything by willpower. I'm just I can do it or I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Right. And uh, after this conversation, he basically said to me, I'm going to check in with you from time to time on this, but you need to stop. And, you know, I, I didn't find all this advice like by reading it. But it's funny when you go back and read about like general authorities talking in, you know, uh, priesthood meetings, uh, other things like that about uh, what to do to control this habit. <laughs> I would lay in bed at night and sing hymns to myself, trying not to do it. You know, I could be up all night trying to do something, trying to like trying to avoid giving in. Uh, I tried tying my hands up, you know, Aww. so that I wouldn't, you know, like all kinds of things like that. But you know, the one thing that held through it, even though I was feeling those urges, was it was so, so miserably embarrassing that I I just, I wasn't going to do it. And so this relates to the other story in the sense that from 15-ish on, I didn't masturbate until after I got married. Like, it just shut off. And the longer I shut it off, the easier it was not to do it. Now, I'm not saying I had a perfect record. Two or three times in the presence of some friend of mine that I was hanging out with or something else, a bunch of pornography, I did it. And then I didn't go confess. But I would tell myself, okay, like, I just did it this once. I've already, you can stop. You can. I've already yeah. been through the confession. Sure, Surely God understands. I don't have to go through that whole thing all over again. Here's why I want to ask about that, because mm-hmm. I think that as we go on to talk about your story with the visions mm-hmm. and stuff, what I want to explore, too, and I asked you about this off off camera, off mm-hmm. recording, is if there's a compulsive element to the voices, because my experience with uh, talking with people who have religious experiences, it's very difficult for Mormons to, at least for myself, when I look back on my most religious experiences, my most spiritual experiences, were usually around shame. Either God was forgiving me of something, Mm -hmm. or I was confessing it, or I was changing out of the shameful. It was I was exonerated from it. It was never like God came and, you know, told me something independently. So I had a different experience than you with that. But I'm just wondering if there's something almost compulsive about you said you spent time singing hymns. And and I the only thing I can relate to in my own experience and with a little bit of scrupulosity here is with my eating disorder, when I was trying not to restrict food, trying to be healthy, trying not to binge and purge, I would do the same thing. I would have to constantly be trying to distract myself, but all the while just thinking about food. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't think about food. Don't think about food. Don't think about food till food is all I'm obsessing about. So I'm wondering if, if that's going to play in into this later, which is why I'm asking. Yeah. Um, so it definitely played during this experience I had as a teenager, both before I confessed and after I confessed, um, but you know, I, I just kept pretty steely resolve, right. For, for a number of years as a 
pretty sexually normative teenage boy. I went from masturbating, you know, one to five times a day to just nothing for a few years, like like two or three times as an isolated incident, right? And then uh, I did get into trouble with girls my last year of high school, and I did go to my bishop and confess that right as I was headed into BYU. Um, but I didn't confess the other parts. I was so terrified when I told him what I'd done with these girls that if I told him one more thing, he would say, you can't go. Yeah. <laughs> right. That I just thought, no, God and I are cool on this. Right. I've already been through this. <laughs> and so I didn't tell him. So to, to to an extent, there was an element of this playing out in my time at BYU. Right. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Now, fast forward, you're hearing voices. You've told your girlfriend about this. Does this loom in the back of your mind like I have some unresolved sin or I'm still a sinner? Like, how are you reconciling all of that? Yeah. So here's what happened. Right before those voices, right before the first voice, there were more voices later. Right before the first voice kicked on or right around that time, I'm not exactly sure on the timing. I did go talk to my bishop of my campus ward and I did tell him, this is what I've done, but I haven't done this for years and I've confessed to everything else. And- he was like, look, put it behind you. You know, you're fine. You're telling me this is not an issue. I just want you to like, just, 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 it's behind you now, right? Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Don't obsess about it. Don't worry about your own worthiness. You told me it's over. It's done. You're fine. Move on. Right. Uh, in hindsight, that was great advice. And that was it, right? So for the next, to your question about like, did I feel guilt or shame about this? In my case, no. Um, I, I, I didn't. It's, it, it's not that sexuality and challenges there didn't come back. I can talk about that in a minute. It's that in this particular sense, it didn't. And as these voices were kicking on and I was having this deeply religious, religious experience, you know, I went that way for nine months, 10 months, you know, maybe a little bit longer, where by most of those standards, I was pure. Was I, was I consuming all the right media? No, I probably watched some movies that people wouldn't approve of, you know, nothing, nothing like that would have gone to anybody's extreme. But, but you found a way to intellectualize it and sort of make sense of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, uh, I didn't look at any more pornography and, I, it's funny, I did, just because I love trolling people at the time, I did get on chat rooms with people that were into that, and I tormented them, right? <laughs> like projecting your own yeah. old, like, judgment yeah. onto someone else. Yeah, I would yeah, torment people in chat rooms that wanted to talk about this stuff, uh, because I thought it was funny for a little while. But uh, I, I would say, by my own personal estimate of myself, I was living quite worthily. And then, as my relationship with my girlfriend progressed, we got into, we, we crossed a couple of lines. Mormon and, lines. Yeah. What's that? Mormon lines. Uh, yeah. Mormon lines. I mean, what other lines are there in this context? <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah. We, we, we broke some rules that, that, you know, I clearly understood. I have to go talk to the bishop about, we have to go talk to the bishop about. And what is God saying to you at this point? You are screwing this up. You need to stop this. Yes. By that point in time, he had told me she's the one, right? You guys are going to get married and all the rest of that. But, you know, 
God was telling me, I'm not like, I was surprised that the voice didn't leave. Okay. I was surprised the voice didn't leave that it was. Because the idea in Mormonism, right, is that you offend the spirit, the Holy Ghost leaves. That's right. You don't have direction, but God's still there when you're sinning. Yeah. And now God's getting angry with me about some of this and God's telling me I need to stop and I need to make it right. And I would say to some extent, I took that as fodder to go talk to the next bishop that I was with uh, there. And he got very upset with me. When I told him in no and it, one's... And you confess about your girlfriend is what you mean. Yeah. My bishop handed me the miracle forgiveness, that bishop, and said, you need to read this and you need to stop this. And, you know, you're going on a mission in the not too distant future and all the rest of that. And, uh, you know, this, this nonsense needs to stop. To your question earlier about can this intensify your experience? Yes, it did. You know, we've skipped a lot of time jumping forward on this in terms of what was going on with my spiritual experiences. I am referencing God, but by this point, there are more voices. There are other voices. They are, by my understanding, you know, other divine angelic beings. Angels. Yeah, probably. Or, you know, can you can you tell us a few specifics? Because, and do you mind sharing the example that you shared with me? Because when I asked you yeah, yeah. what it was like, because I asked Aaron when I first met, I said, "Okay, well, I have a really active imagination. Uh-huh. I can see myself almost imagining a voice or almost imagining God talking to me." What was it like for you, Aaron? And what did you tell me? What was it like? Well, I I saw an angel for real, right? Um, like human flesh. Like they looked. I mean, yeah, angelic. Uh, they were completely real. Uh, like. I was the only one in the room the first time it happened. I was by myself, but it was real. And there began to be more. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, it got that real. And they had personalities and identities. And the reason I was a little bit um, circumspect about calling those additional voices angels is in the beginning, I didn't know what they were. I, I but you knew they weren't people, right? Do you knew enough to know that they yeah. weren't actual, other people weren't seeing them? That, that's right. I knew enough with the, so with the voices, I knew enough to know other people weren't hearing them, even when there began to be extra voices. And I knew which voice was God's and which voice was the Holy Ghost and which voice were, which voices were others. But did I know those others were, you know, by LDS theological standards, angels, or were they post-mortal beings or, you know, like you can get pretty deep on this stuff. The answer to that is no, generally I, I didn't. I just knew there were multiple voices and they were all on God's side in some sense. Maybe they were ancestors trying to help me or look after me or other things like that, right? So then to, to your question, when I am in the midst of this time with, uh, with Catherine and we are going through all this stress of being madly in love and crazy horny and all the rest of that. And have to be good Mormons. Yeah, and not doing a great job, and God's really coming down on me. Um, you know, we've, we've skipped a lot of time in terms of what this whole experience was having an effect on me just in general. And I will sum it up to say, increasingly, I was sleeping less and less and less from that fall before, right? We're, we're nine, 10 months out from there and I'm not sleeping much. And I'm at the point where I'm not eating much. And when I do eat, I can't keep down. I will just throw up. Uh, You're anxious. What's that? Your body's anxious. Yeah. I mean, I, that's not how I thought about it at the time. I would just, I would be hungry. I would eat and then I would get sick and throw up. Right. And interesting. And I would get to the point where I just give up trying to eat sometimes because I knew likely if I eat this, I'm going to throw it up. 
I, I had a physical fitness class where there was a skin pinch and some other things like that to test for body fat. And I can remember the, uh, the person that was doing it for the university, you know, after we'd run our mile and done all these other fitness things said, if I hadn't seen you do some of that stuff and you weren't well dressed and I didn't know you were here, I would say you are suffering from pretty solid malnutrition, you know, like that's my, that's my estimate of you. You have that little body fat. So were people worried about you? Could they tell a change was occurring? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Catherine could see that this whole experience was intensifying and we spent a lot more time talking about it. And I, you know, I would tell her that I felt unwell and had headaches all the time. And sometimes I was a pretty miserable person to be around because, <laughs> you know, a, I felt terrible. B, God's talking to me all the time, and this is really starting to go to my head, and these other things are going on, and I'm starting to develop a complex, and I'm I'm projecting a lot of all the you know sort of negative and miserable aspects of this experience onto other people around me, and uh, my mom would see me just once every so often at this point, and you know she's worried, so we we I can remember we would go to like a Costco. And I wanted to be financially independent. I was working at this point. I didn't want to be beholden to my parents. So I was really intent on going my own way. But she would say, I'm coming down, let's visit. We go to a Costco and she would just load up her van. And like, I'd come back to my place and just stuff the thing full of food. And my roommates loved it because I didn't eat most of it because I didn't want to eat. And they were getting free food. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I don't, we don't care that our roommate is withering away. Free Costco. Yeah. yeah. And it's fancy high-end food, right? <laughs> it's fancy high-end food. There's all the junk food plus like the, you know, overpriced, uh, you know, pre-made, you know, there's a whole pot roast here and all you have to do is throw a bag in a pot of water and, you know, like anyway, yeah, if there was an aspect of guilt or shame causing this to intensify, it would have correlated in time with his other experience. And so now we get to the point where you're asking me what happened here. So I haven't stopped my judginess. My judginess around people has only continued to increase. By this point, going to church every Sunday, I'm sitting in sacrament meeting or Sunday school or anything, and I'm listening to them all talk, and I'm just thinking, you people don't get it. None of you get it. You're all... Well, and God's telling you things about all of them, right? That's right. That's right. And this has to change. You know, like God's telling me it's not going to be this way forever, right? This this is all going to change, and you're going to be a part of it somehow, Right. Um, and I couldn't sit through church without feeling this sense of disgust and rage. And I was tired all the time. And I had, I'd felt like I had a brick sitting on my head all the time when I was awake and walking around. That was sort of the analogy I would use is the headache felt like how you'd probably feel if you just put a steady weight on your head and you could never take it off. And, uh, I, I am walking South of campus uh, I lived in an apartment on Liberty Square at the time at BYU, which is a you know fairly well-known apartment complex uh, just just right off the south end of campus. And I am sitting in our dirty, you know, six guys doing apartment living room, and nobody's there. Like they're all at church. It's Sunday, and God is talking to me pretty intensely. And I'm just thinking, I you know, I've just I can't take this. I've had enough of this, and. I need to know that I'm not losing my mind. You know, I haven't touched in on that much, but I just, I could never really let go of the idea that maybe I'm losing my mind, even while I want to accept this. And this is real. I was very fractionated that way. And I begin to think to myself, you know, I deserve to have 
proof and evidence. I have the faith. I believe, and I need help here. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm torn. I sat there on my couch, just staring straight forward in this room with dirty college carpet and, you know, and old furniture. And, uh, I began to think to myself, well, if I believe I can see this, I will get, I can have a miracle. And slowly, you know, as proof that this is all real and the church is true, the angel Moroni faded into the room. And he looked a lot like, uh, the one portrayed in the LDS artwork. <laughs> Man, they really nailed it. <laughs> he had just giant forearms and biceps. And he was dressed in white. And, you know, we talked for a little while. And and then... So, like, talking like you and me, sitting here across the room, like... Yeah, he's, he looked... He was standing the whole time. I was sitting kind of like this couch I'm on right now. And he was standing a few feet in front of me. Just faded in, standing right there. He and I talked. He didn't really move around much. Just I shouldn't say he didn't really move around much. He didn't move around. He just stood there. What did he say to you? Uh, this is real. When this is your confirmation. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm real. And this is all part of a bigger plan. And and you're going to play a part in it. And, you know, you've been worthy. You're struggling, but you've been worthy enough. You know, it, like you've been dedicated enough. How did you feel after that? The sense of awe and narcissism were cranking up one way, you know, and just like, this is amazing. And But did it relieve your discomfort or your angst or your shame? No, it was like, it was like, I went both directions Uh with added intensity, you know, like moments of this is real. And And oh no, now I'm seeing people. (laughs) Yep. That's right. I, I went from God's voice to multiple voices to now I'm seeing things. And he's telling me that to believe it. Yes. So that I'm sure you were so conflicted. Yes. Yes. Now, I, I need to make it clear at this point that, you know, many people that find themselves in these circumstances that make the most news, you know, have developed this whole independent theology and, you know, they've had dreams and near-death experiences and all the rest of that stuff. And I didn't, I didn't have any of that, Okay. I I just knew what God was telling me and that the end of the world was coming in not too many years and I was going to play an important part of it and I was going to help fix some of this screwiness in the church. You weren't ready to take up the mantle of the one mighty and strong yet, but it sounds like you could have been headed there. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, uh, in this same period of time over the course of a few months here, you know, probably, I I mean, I don't, the sequence I can't quite nail down in my memory at this point, but coincident in all these experiences was another one where God told me that, um, you know, again, like theologians can argue this. It's just my experience. God told me I was the rod. Okay. Okay. When you and I talked at that brunch, I couldn't remember exactly what this was, but God told me I was the rod. Is it because your name's Aaron? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) To be honest with you, that's funny you should say that, but I was reading my scriptures. I was was taking Old Testament classes at this point, (laughs) you know, classes on Isaiah, all the rest of that. I had had a guy that was popular in sort of LDS books and literature on Isaiah that wrote about Isaiah's poetry. Uh, Lund, I think, was his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was a teacher of mine that summer, and somehow I stumbled across these passages, and I'm reading about it, and God tells me that's you, you know, that's you, you're that you're that person, you're that figure here. So so 
now you're seeing angels. It's getting more intense. Um, do you start seeing more beings? Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is the summer of 1997. Um, I left university at the end of 1997 to go home and prepare for a mission. Uh, during this time period, I'm having up and down experiences with my girlfriend. <laughs> I, I, uh, I tell her, I know we're supposed to get married, but I don't want to do it. I'm only doing it because God wants me to. God tells me I'm, I can't go down my path unless we get married at some point. It's so romantic. <laughs> I don't really want to be with you, but <laughs> God tells me we basically we have to. This future of mine is getting a little bit more vivid. I'm the rod and we're not too many years out before this is really all going to flip on. I'm starting to get some in, some senses that like the church is going to reach out to me at some point, you know, or I need to go up there and announce myself, but I'm terrified to do this and I'm not quite ready. And Catherine's still the only person I've really talked to. Once or twice, I sat down with other people that I knew that I thought I could trust and I started to kind of nudge around the edges of this. And I remember like sharing a one night sharing my patriarchal blessing, doing a little exchange on that with a college roommate of mine and trying to get into this a little bit. And I could tell he thought it was a little weird. It, you know, in some sense, I felt accepted and like, I'm not quite sure what's up with you. I thought you were more normal. And I just want to say in my experience in this, and this is why it's important for me to have you tell your story, because I've heard this story repeated over and over and over. In fact, it seems to, I don't know if we could get people to study this or something. At this age, there's a lot of missionaries mm -hmm. who start having visions on their mission or mm -hmm. it starts uh, intensifying at this age. And, you know, they make sense of voices as, as different things. So I just want to point out, like, this is not, I know it felt unique to you at the time, especially because you were the rod, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But uh, a lot of people, I think, more people than we realize are probably having this experience. I would say if you're a Mormon listening to this, you probably know someone who's had some sort of iteration of this experience. But yours is intense in the sense that you're now meeting God mm -hmm. face to face. I'm never seeing God in person. God is always a voice, but I am meeting angels and other people that, again, like I'm not sure they're angels, but they're, they're some kind of good. And I'm starting to be exposed to uh, uh, evil forces. Mostly I can just feel them. I don't generally see them, right? But I'm starting to be exposed to that. Uh, uh, and it's really painful. Like, you, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I, may, I, I feel strange hearing people say this now, but I would have characterized it the same way. Sometimes you'll hear these folks that are prominent in our society today over the last few decades that think they're really tuned into God and they think they're fighting for God and something is going on with their health like it was with mine. They'll say they're under spiritual attack. I had this experience of sort of being under spiritual attack. It was generally when I was behaving in ways where I thought I wasn't worthy and then something would follow. And it was this horrifying dark experience. Can you give me an example? Yeah. Like, uh, just before I went in and confessed to my bishop about one of the things that Catherine and I had done, I was like, it was so, you know, our experience together, she and I was getting so intense and so heavy that I really wanted 
that like I was really going to push into us having sex. Right. And the whole time this is going on, God is like yelling at me. The angels are yelling at me like, you know, the other voice is like, stop, 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 stop. And I'm just no, you know, screw Everybody all you. Shut right? up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I am going to do this anyway. And that night and the next couple of days, I would have these periods of like paralysis. I would be laying there and I would feel this just terrible sadness and darkness like this just ferocious sense that I'm under attack come over me and all I could do is just kind of lay there and endure these waves of like misery and guilt and shame and loss and you know it was strange but it was it was sort of immobilizing to go through this experience and I shared that it was going on once or twice with with Catherine but mostly I kept this to myself and mostly it was at night um, when I was by myself, maybe a, maybe I was in bed already or something like that. So that was going on. And then I began to see other people physically, like other, you know, other uh, beings would just appear and they would be there. And it was getting to the point where the voice of God is constantly present. These other voices are present. And uh, there are people that I can physically see that are participating in my experience with other people that are present, but they can't see them. So it would not be unlike, you know, you have a couple of chairs in this room, you and I are talking and all of a sudden a person would just appear to me over in that other chair. And, and you know, I can't see them, but I know you, you can see, see them. them. That's right. I can see them and they are talking. They're involved in this conversation with me. They're listening to you. Is it distracting to you? Like, would you, would they talk over me and talk over you? So you're getting frustrated. Uh, some, some, I don't ever remember being talked over myself. I do remember trying to hold attention on the real people's voices and the, you know, divine people's voices. Right. Uh, and uh, the divine people's voices were often telling me things about what was going on with those people or what I should think about it or yeah. like, don't trust them or believe this. Mm -hmm, don't believe mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here's the reason they're telling you that here's what's behind. And, and it wasn't all about trust, don't trust, but there were definitely some elements of paranoia. It was more like trying to give me insights. Like this is where all the information's coming from that makes me really plugged in. You know, yeah, so. I mean, I've talked to a few uh, people who claim prophetic visions who will say, like, you know, when I've reached out to them for this podcast or whatever, they'll say, let me talk to my angels about it or let me talk to mm -hmm. uh, th this, you know, my spirit says that's okay. That's right. You know, or it's, or you have good intentions, but you're not, it's not time yet yeah. and we can talk to you soon. And I've always thought that that was really interesting. So it's kind of a similar thing. Sometimes I would talk to Catherine like that. We would be talking and I would get quiet and I would just sit there for a minute, like kind of paying attention. And then I would, then I would start to talk about whatever I just heard, you know, so I could get her in on the conversation sort of secondhand. <laughs> and she was still being supportive at this point. She wasn't concerned that maybe you were experiencing an illness or no, anything like that. I wasn't being 100% honest with her about the depth of it. Like I told her about the spiritual sort of darkness moments a couple of times, but I didn't tell her I was seeing people. For some reason, I thought if I tell her I'm seeing people, she will not be able to accept that. I've got to wait on that. 
So I kept that to myself. So when did it all come to a head? Because my understanding is you, do you make it to the MTC? Is that what I remember? I did. I did. So I had to apply to my mission three times. Uh, each time there, uh, the application was sent back saying there's problems with your health. You need to go get additional examination and doctor's clearance. You keep losing weight. You're sick yeah, all the time. Yeah, you know, And the doctors don't. And they're know. talking about your physical health. Yeah, not, they don't know that right. you're having these experiences. No, none of that. They, I'm not saying a word of that to anybody. And so they just know my physical health isn't good. And I had this one experience that really freaked a lot of people out around me where I went to get my wisdom teeth removed. Th- th- this guy was a pro, the guy that removed the wisdom teeth. He'd, he'd done like thousands of missionaries, you know, in Provo. <laughs> I was just taking standard painkillers and probably, you know, antibiotics and so forth after the uh, surgery. And I was visiting my sister and a brother-in-law and Catherine was with me. And I just started to have this out of body kind of strange experience. I was laying on the couch and suddenly I felt like I was in my head, in my body, but not in control of anything that was going on. It was like a child had taken over inside of me. Uh, I can remember like playing with Catherine's necklace or maybe it was mine and I tried, I had a chain around my neck and I tried to put it on her uh, and a few other things. And my sister and Catherine were starting to wonder what's going on here. And I think it was starting to make them nervous. And I'm just inside watching this happen, kind of freaking out. Like I, I'm not in control of any of this and I'm stuck And they took me to the emergency room and the doctors were, you know, just checking my heart rate and a few other things, right? We have no idea what's wrong here. He just started taking these meds. You know, maybe that's what's going on. I'm just laying there on one of those flat, like, examination beds, right? And slowly I come to, I I don't know, I think I was probably there 45 minutes or an hour and I just sit up and I'm back in control, and everything's fine. And they asked me what happened. And I said, I just like, it was like a child took over me, right? <laughs> just unwieldy, like toddler child. And I'm, I was stuck in there and I couldn't get out. And so, you know, all this information kind of accumulates and has me going to see doctors and so forth. But eventually by the next year in the early spring, I had a mission application ex- uh, accepted Toronto, Canada, Mandarin Chinese speaking. Uh, I was going to go into the MTC and I can remember feeling kind of stoked that, you know, whereas I hadn't wanted to go on a mission before I was like, well, you know what? I can let my, I I can let some of this fly. Missions are where this stuff is supposed to happen. So I'm not, I'm not going to tell everybody everything, but I'm going to have a kick-ass mission. You don't have to keep it in so much anymore. That's right. And I'm going to change the world. Like I have gospel insights. Nobody else has got, I am fully plugged in. Well, and already at BYU, you'd sort of repress some of your feelings. You got yes. in trouble quite yes. publicly for that. And then, <laughs> you know, you're you're trying to make sense of that. So I can imagine it was an exciting... Yeah. Uh, you, or maybe you were optimistic about it. No, I, like both. I was... It was exciting and I was optimistic. And I got into the MTC. I was only there for a month. They sent me home after a month. I'll get to that in just a minute. But... Uh, like I, I can remember sitting there in the orientation where they, at the time, the parents sit down and, you know, the missionaries sit down and then the parents get sent out and then you're on your own. I just remember thinking, I am ready for this. I am just going to rock this thing. And I was feeling really excited because the year 2000 is, you know, it's 1998. I'm going to come back. 
I'm going to come back super worthy. I converted all these people. I'm going to marry my wife in a Mormon temple. And this thing is just going to take off. And, you know, I'm going to get plugged in and like save the world. Right. That's the kind of enthusiasm I was feeling. They knew I had health problems. And I, I told, you know, there were warnings I gave to my companions and my teachers. Like there might be times when I need to go leave the room and get something to eat. I might have to throw up. I, you know, like, I don't know why this is happening, but this is just an aspect of my life that I deal with. And I did okay for three, four weeks. I can remember some of the other like missionaries in my group in my room were in that emotional pressure cooker of, you know, being in the MTC and not sure they're worthy and the language is hard because it's Chinese and all the rest of that. And I remember one night, like in the middle of the night, it's dark. And one of the missionaries in my room and the other bunk just, just bursts out crying I'm not learning the language. I'm not worthy, you know, all the rest of that. And I sat up and I was like, shut up, you know, stop being a wuss. You're good enough for this. God will help you figure it out. You know, stop being such a coward. You think you've been through hard times? Like I have been through harder times. My health sucks. You know, like I'm not even going into all the details of the stuff I've suffered through. You're going to be fine. Just, just shut up and go through it. Then I don't remember how much distant what I'm about to say was from that moment, but some period of time later, one night, I sleep really terribly, I wake up, I'm extremely sick, and I can feel this catatonia thing coming on. And I tell the guys in my room, look, I'm just having a bad morning, go get breakfast, I'm just gonna stay here, you know? I was I was the I was one of the earliest people up most mornings. I was singing in the shower. I was you know, I was I was like super enthusiastic. And so they could tell something was wrong and they'd heard me talk that, you know, I've got some health problems. And I lay there in bed and the feeling just gets worse and that sense of attack comes on and the feeling of being trapped in my body comes on. And Let's talk about the attack, because I think when you first told me, you told me that it sounded like, you know, when Joseph Smith talks about being attacked yeah. by those evil spirits, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, that I mean, that's what it was, and I couldn't figure out why, but I just felt horrible inside and overwhelmed, and the sickness, the the stuff that would make me throw up, and the headache, and the fatigue, it was just, it was all in a cocktail, just very intense, and, um, you know, my eyes are watering, and they're bloodshot, and I got stuff coming out my, like, just mucus and slobber and you know like like I'm starting to stiffen up and feel like I've lost control of myself and they come back from breakfast into the room and they know something weird is going on so they're like hey let's give you a blessing (laughs) so they pull one of the desk chairs from this MTC room out and they help me out of bed and they sit me down in this chair you know and like I can barely move right I mean they're having to handle me mostly to get me into this chair and you know, and they're starting to get nervous even as they're doing this, like, oh, what the hell is going on? You know, uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but my skin was changing color, you know, like I was starting to go a little blue and, uh, they could see this and I'm sitting there in the chair, just, just shaking and, you know, just gagging and snots coming out my nose and I nearly wet myself and they're trying to give me a blessing. And that one missionary that I chewed out, like he's given the blessing and he it is such a scary experience for him that again he starts to weep in the middle of the blessing and they just wrap it up the, the other missionaries like stop, stop just you know and and i i start to heave and they get me to the bathroom and i throw up and i pee all over the place and they're like okay something's wrong and so they they two of the guys in that room 
just basically carry me down to the medical center at the MTC. And they put me on one of those examination beds again. And and I smell like piss and, you know, and I'm a mess and they don't know what's wrong. And my heart rate is down in like the high 20s and my skin is blue and they're very nervous about it. But nothing else seems wrong. And they're like, heart rate's really low. Something's dangerous here, but it's no history of like anything. What the hell is going on? And so I'm just laying there and my color's starting to return. And my main companion, you know, the guy that shared the bunk with me, he is off in a room nearby with one of the medical center attendants, this old gal. I'm sure she's seen everything at the MTC. And she's asking him, like, what do you know about this? I don't know. He just said he has, like, blood sugar problems and these other things. And, you know, like, like he's told us all about it. He's been fine. Well, is he lonely? No. Is he sad? No. Does he miss his girlfriend? No. Like, he's been great. He's been fine. I don't know what's going on here. And I'm laying there in this catatonic state thinking, how dare she? How dare she do this? How dare she suspect my devotion, my faith, whatever? But I'm stuck in this thing. And then, you know, true to form... You know, like, it's less than an hour and I come to. And they give me a couple of, like, glucose tablets because they're worried it's my blood sugar. They tell me to chew it up and just hang around for a while. And they talk to me. They ask a couple of things. And I just tell them, like, I don't know what this is. I've seen a bunch of doctors. And, you know, it comes and goes. And I'll be fine. And some not too long later, they send me up to the MTC president's office. And he basically tells me, uh, you're going home you're done with your mission. And, uh, I, uh, this is not fair. And I have worked, you know, and tried to stay faithful and all the rest of that. And how dare you send me home in this? Uh, where's, I remember asking him something like, what, where's Nephi's courage? Where's the promise here? Right? Like, I'm willing to do this. Like, we believe in a God that intervenes. I know that happens. Like, you can't send me home. This is part of my mission. This is part of the life I am supposed to have. And you're taking it away from me. And I was, you know, he was trying to talk me out of it and say, you have to go. At one point he said, look, we can't, we can't take on the risk knowing you have some strange medical problem. If you were to die here you know, that would be a terrible thing and it would subject us to a lot of liability. And it's just, it's not smart for you. It's not smart for us. You need to get well. And, and I said, you can't take this away from me. And I, I'm questioning your faith if you think I can't get over this. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you can get better before your uh, group leaves to go out, you know, into the mission field, then you're going to have to work hard to learn a language, but you can come back and go with them. So I'm not going to, I'm, you know, we're not going to release you at this point, but you have to get better and come back before then. So my mom comes to, my mom and dad come down to the MTC and pick me up and I'm pretty dejected. And they take me up to my grandma's place, which is uh, Kaysville North of here. And, um, they're told that I should probably get examined by doctors and see us, uh, get some psychiatric help and other things like that. And they take me to see, uh, a Mormon shrink, you know, and like still no one knows that you're seeing visions yet. No, no, I'm not telling anybody. And the Mormon shrink, uh, she talks to my my parents are in the room for part of it. She's talking to me. 
this is what normally happens. You know, these are things we see. This is the service we provide. And, you know, I'm seeing her for a few appointments in this interim space just after I'm out of the MTC for like, I don't know, it's a few days a week. And at one point, it's just me and her together and she's talking to me and like, I just don't trust this lady. She's asking me all these probing questions and I am positive if I tell her what's really going on, she's going to have me committed or something like that. (laughs) And at one point, she's... You know, she's telling me, I want you to keep a notebook, and if you're not willing to tell me about these things, I just want you to write everything down. We can't clear you and say that you're better unless you can process this stuff with me. And I, I think, I think, like, I didn't, I, I don't quite know at the time, but in hindsight, maybe, maybe they thought I could just get it all cleared up then. Like, you know, like, I don't know what they had in mind. I wasn't paying that much attention to, like, the dynamics going on around me. I, I don't know why. I just kind of that screwed up and that worried about what everybody would think and everything else. But, Um, I didn't write much down in the notebook and she began to be frustrated with me on some of these appointments. And at one point she, uh, she said to me, I can't work with this if you don't write these things down. And it seems like you don't trust me and I'm really trying to help you. You know, why don't you trust me? And I just went on a tirade and I sat there in that chair and I just, everything I could think of to, insult her and the practice and why I couldn't trust her. And, you know, I don't remember the whole experience. I do remember that she was teary when it was over. And that was the last appointment we ever had. And then I went up to live with my parents near Boise uh, in Meridian, Idaho area. And they decided to take me to the stake president there. And that stake president believed in some strange forms of medicine homeopathy, uh, his specific thing was he knew this guy that claimed to be a a neuro-linguistic programmer, NLP is what they called it. And um, I went and saw this stake president, my dad and mom were with me, and he was telling me, I've seen this guy work miracles. I've seen him cure cancer. I've seen him work with people that are schizophrenic. He, He claimed this one lady, her eyes would change color in front of people. She would, you know, she had such you know, schizophrenia or something like that. And that this guy, this guy was not LDS, but he could heal me. He was a miracle worker. And they gave me a blessing. And in the blessing, the stake president promised me, you will be healed if you go see this guy. His name was, you know what? I shouldn't name him. (laughs) I'd love to name him, but I shouldn't name him. Um, He was a nice dude. Uh, I went up to go see him and uh, something about talking to him. I, I didn't, I didn't think of it at the time like it was quack medicine. I want to make that clear. I was taking the stake president at his word. Okay, here we go, right? Even if this guy isn't a member. And in my conversation with him, like he could see something about me practicing his craft, right, that made me want to trust him and accept what he was saying. And I wasn't going to tell him everything that was going on, but I was going to let him in on little things here and there. And he had this method where the idea with NLP, the way he practiced it was, you know, you fix this by getting up and moving and paying attention to which side of your body you're favoring while you're talking certain ways. And, you know, this is linked to your physical motion is linked to your behavior. And if you want to change your behavior, pay attention to what you're doing physically when you're behaving that way. And you can fix it by doing something else. Right. And 
I saw him a bunch of times. And in the beginning, I was super hopeful and I was going through the drills. I would walk around in circles and figure eights trying to work this out. You know, I would see him for an hour, a few hours, and then go home and do this. And we had people coming to visit, but the time is ticking by. And, and are you still hearing voices and seeing visits? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I've got roughly eight weeks before this group goes out. And I've burned a good chunk of that first one with the, with the LDS psychiatrist, right? And so I'm up there and I'm working with this guy and I know the clock is ticking and I'm trying to get better. And, uh, he, uh, this, this therapist, this NLP therapist, he is talking to me in ways that are helping me feel better. I'm feeling measurably better in some ways. In other ways, I'm not, but I'm still hearing voices and seeing everything. So uh, there's gotta be something to what this guy is doing. It's, you know, the state president promised a blessing. So then my progress sort of halts, stops getting any better. And uh, we, we have been to see some other doctors. I've been to see a neurologist. I've gotten checked for brain tumors, you know, all kinds of other things like that. Because I would leak out a little bit of like, I'm, you know, I've, I've just, I'm really suffering psychologically, you know. So, and the headaches like yeah, the and headaches all and, that, yeah. And I remember one neurologist asked me, one of the neurologists asked me, are you having premonition? And like that, I just had this brief moment of panic, like, oh no, he knows what's going on. You know, like, I don't know how he knows what's going on, but somebody just pegged me and like, I, I've got to get away from this. Right. And so I wasn't going to see any, I wasn't doing much to see real doctors. The one thing I had done that I'd really considered was I had one doctor that was a family friend tell me maybe you ought to consider some antidepressants. But I thought to take one of those would be to be faithless and to take one of those would be to admit to myself that I had real psychological problems and this was not divine. And I just wasn't willing to do it. And so I keep seeing this other guy and the time is ticking down and I'm beginning to panic that I'm not going to get back in time. And I'm going to the stake president saying this isn't working. And I'm going to the therapist and saying this isn't working. And I'm getting much more intense with the therapist. And he gets upset with me in one session in this process. And he goes, uh, you know what you need to do, Aaron? Uh, you need to throw this whole situation away and start over. Drop the religion, drop the mission, drop the family, drop the commitments, drop the girlfriend, drop everything. Like, go someplace where you can just start over. I can't fix you. You're not going to get any better unless you just, like, something's going on that you're not willing to give up. And you need to give it up. And if you don't, like, you can keep coming to see me, but I'm just going to keep telling you this. And, that, like, we're done here. And I had driven myself to this appointment, and I was driving myself home. And on the drive home... I, we haven't talked about this much, but throughout this process, as it got more intense, I frequently contemplated how nice it would be to be dead. Just, you don't exist, you're pain-free. You were so, you're suffering so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, you know, by, by that, you know, by that, it, by the beginning of that first year, you know, a few months into this experience, right? Three or four months in, by the beginning of that first year, I was occasionally thinking how nice it would be to just pass on. How nice is it going to be when our life is over? You know, and I, I sometimes thought maybe some of my pains and, and, and problems were coincident with I'm getting old, you know. <laughs> At 20, 21. <laughs> well, 18, right? 19. I'm just getting a little old. Um, anyway, uh, I'm driving home from this appointment and I have thought about, you know, how nice it would be not to exist for a while. And I begin to realize that 
you know, if I frame this right, certain people know I have these catatonic states that I go into and they know I lose control. If I just drive this van off an overpass at a high enough speed, they'll maybe just think that I seized up and they won't think it was suicide. They will be sad, but they won't feel the sadness of what did we do, you know, as a family, as friends or anything else like that. What did we do that Aaron committed suicide? And I thought, if God is going to judge me for this, I know I'm just wasting my opportunity and I'm probably going to be condemned. But, you know, at this point, I had concluded that any God that would treat anybody around them this way and let them suffer this much for the cause, in some ways, he was kind of an asshole, right? And I I haven't gone into that much, but I had fully accepted more of like an Old Testament God that that was willing to be a jerk to everybody and abusive to anybody around them if it meant that you grew in the way that his plan required. And you knew this because he was at one point starting to tell you to do terrible things. Uh-huh. Yeah. More and more terrible yeah, things. Yeah. Now now that really came, you know, quite a quite a few years later, but just the amount I was suffering with this at the time, I would sometimes say to God like this just feels so unfair. You know, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished. I, I'm awesome. I'm, I'm the rod. You know, blah, 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 blah. I'm crazy. I'm, you know, like I'm losing my mind. And, and then somewhere in betwixt that, I am suffering, and this is miserable. And I don't understand why God has to make it this way. Like, what? Why do people that He's chosen have to suffer so much in this process? And of course, you can find evidence of this in Scripture, right? That he makes people do hard things, that he subjects them to horrible things to test them. Only as I'm going through this and saying, well, this must be me too. Well, you know what, God, like you're a dick for letting Job suffer. You know, you're like, you're horrible for half the things you've done. But apparently that's how this is supposed to work, right? Like, isn't there a better way? Come on, God, you can... Right? And and, uh, so... I'm on this drive home from this appointment, thinking those thoughts, thinking about how do I get out of this, thinking I can deal with God. I'm going to do it. And I'm, there's this road on, I think it's called Eagle Road in Idaho, near Boise, sort of on the outer edge of Boise near Meridian. I don't, I don't remember for sure if that's the road, but somewhere around there I'm driving and there's an opportunity to drive off an overpass and I begin to veer in that direction and um, I white out, and I come to on the side of the road in the van at a stop, and, uh, you know, the, the white out, all the voices are screaming at me and telling me to stop. And when I come to, I say to myself, you know, there's this stuff in the scriptures about how life is supposed to be joyous. You know, I'm thinking about that scripture, you know, Adam fell, <laughs> Men might be, and men are that they have joy, and there is like no joy in this. This is just all misery. So I'm going to take. I'll say I'll I'll give the guy's first name. I'm going to take Rodney's advice. Okay, I'm going to take Rodney's advice. I don't know what this means, and it falls contrary to what the stake president told me that I would be healed. But like either I I can't make it. I can't I can't fulfill that whole set of duties. I'm going to kill myself before it happens if I don't stop. And so I went home and no questions, no ifs, no buts, no explanation, no willingness to listen. I tell my parents, I'm not going back. I call the stake president. I'm done. 
Like, I'm not willing to talk to any of them about why or why I've reached this conclusion. I'm just done. And I call my grandparents in Kaysville and I tell them, I ask them if I can move in with them. And they're aware that there's, you know, stuff going on. And they say yes. And in a few hours that same day, I call Catherine and I say, can you come pick me up? In a few hours, I go from this guy saying you're never going to be fixed and I want to kill myself and all the rest of that to I'm out of here. And my mother is beside herself because we all need to go on missions and what will people think? And this is the most important thing for my son and he's sick and he won't talk to me and I can't take care of him. And, you know, my dad's a little bit more circumspect about it and the stake president's kind of baffled, but he just sort of let it go. And I also told that doctor that said, why don't you consider taking the antidepressants? Okay, I'll do it. Like you get me set up with a prescription and I will, I will start taking them. And I move in with my grandparents and I just, I do what Rodney says. I, I drop it all and I start taking the antidepressants. And in a month, you know, it's, it was gradual, but over the course of about a month, all of those voices and the visions and everything else just snapped out of existence. Just stopped. Snapped is not the right word. They faded out and then they were just gone. So as your antidepressant, and you said it was Celexa, right? Yeah, yeah, Are you okay saying yeah. that? That's that's interesting because that's what I was given to at that that age. So just a basic run of the mill anxiety medicine. Yeah, no, no antipsychotics, no, I mean nothing like that, right? And I, I didn't have a job, and I just sat around with my grandparents. They were the coolest people, and I ate their food, and I mowed their lawn, and I watched TV with them, and you know, and I. I took this medication. I didn't even have a car for a while. I just stayed at their house and slept a lot. And I started to eat better. I couldn't keep food down all the time, but I started to gain a little bit of weight. And I can remember just puzzling, like, I just left this and I started taking a pill. And God and all this just disappeared. A pill. A pill. Like, I've been talking about the end of the world and angels and now all of a sudden one pill yeah. and God's purpose is frustrated. Yeah, a few milligrams or micrograms of something and this stuff just all disappears. What? So how do you make sense of that? At the time, I didn't know what to make of it, but you know what? I felt so much better. I felt, I mean, I was alive again. Life was not 24-7 misery and drama. I can remember finishing a meal and my grandparents had this husky just taking her for a walk around the block in the fall and or late summer or something like that and you could hear the birds and the breeze and I just I wasn't miserable I wasn't suffering everything just felt good you know like there was such contrast and and I was listening to like old-timey music because they love that stuff right uh Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby and you know it's all that post-war you know, life is up, life is turning up again, right? Like mm -hmm. things are better. And, and my grandparents were so accepting of the choices. They didn't condemn me for deciding to drop the mission. They didn't ask me what was wrong with me. They just took, you know. So all the pressure sort of left. Yeah, it just disappeared. And, you know, I was with them a couple of months, three months. And I was like, I'm okay. I'm time to get a job. Time to start into the next thing. You know, maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe I won't. Did, that whole experience of whatever that was, was behind me. And I knew I'm not going to church because that's just going to bring some of this back. And I'm not, I'm not praying. I'm not reading my script. I'm not going anywhere near whatever that was. I'm taking this medication 
and just enjoying the relief. But that wasn't the end of the experience for you. And we're getting on, so I want to kind yeah. of like fast forward. But you um, you didn't stop church completely. You eventually married in the temple with Catherine and the voices came back. Yeah. So if we jump ahead a little bit, um, I we got married in the Bountiful Temple um, and we, we lived in... Taylorsville in this apartment and I got a job and she got a job and I was doing really well with my work and my career was accelerating in tech and I was learning all these things and having a good time and I felt fine. I was taking this medication. Um, you know, the medication changed me emotionally and that was hard in our marriage. And it was hard for her that I was just completely disinterested in going back to church or having anything to do with that. And I would say, look, it's not that I don't believe this anymore, but I am puzzled. I don't know what to make of this experience. And when I go back near any of these things, it's very uncomfortable. And I just... It upsets me. Yeah, I just I just don't think it's good for me to be near that. And the people around me could accept that. She, you know, active and devout as she was, she could accept that. I think it was emotionally hard, you know, but, uh, and well, at one point she was gearing up for you to be this, you know, ushering in the second coming. And now you're like, no, right. Well, I didn't, you know, the thing is some of those things I didn't tell her, like she, she got a a proxied experience of that with me where she, she knew you were at least a spiritual giant, right? She didn't know about the, like, yes, there's something special about this guy, but she didn't know about the rod. She didn't know about the people I saw. Just we have something special together and he's going to do something special was, you know, in a more nonspecific way. That's as far as this. Yeah. Went, it's right? a very Mormon paradigm too. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd equated this to the longer we were married is, do you know what happens when she and I talk about this a lot is we have this deep, intimate, emotional experience, but at some point, like it also introduces a lot of jagged emotions and things into the experience. And, I just correlated that sometimes our relationship would get rocky. You know, I would talk about these things, I would share them, and then we would have, we would fight about stuff, or she would feel sad about something. And I I felt and calculated that somehow us talking about those things brought drama that I didn't want into our lives. So you just omitted them to keep things yeah, going. Yeah, so as the medication is kicking on, I'm saying I need my distance and I'm just shutting all of this out. And the other thing the medication did with me is it like it's like it took my emotions and turned on the mute button. You ever watch like one of those little graphic equalizers on a stereo? You can see the little lights going up and down, but there's no sound, right? That I can remember thinking like this is the metaphor for me. Like, yes, life is happening around me and people are feeling things. But I'm not, and it feels so good. And I'm just going to stay here for as long as this is comfortable. So uh, we eventually, like, as my career was taking off, we moved out to California. You know, we're part of a, uh, in the Bay Area, part of a nice ward out there. And while we were there, I decided to get more involved. And, um, you know, a year and a half in, something like that, I went off the antidepressants. I thought I'm well enough. You know, and I, I'm, I've got a lot of questions and problems with all of this and things I got to work out, but I don't mind just going back to church and being with people and I don't, I don't need to conform and it's a liberal ward in the Bay area. So, you know, the pressures are lower, right? And nobody knows me. So I've got no legacy, no baggage. I can just, I can be the new me here. So, uh, I went off the antidepressants more quickly than is advised. I went off cold Turkey and 
Yikes. I went through this very, <laughs> you know, condensed period of a few weeks where I would wake up in the middle of the night in just a crazy rage that I've never felt before or since where I just needed to hurt people and break things and destroy stuff. And like the first night it happened, I, I just got out of the apartment that we were in and I went off to some field and I kicked rocks and broke glass and, you know, yelled at things. And I, I'm glad like no cop showed up, you know, wondering what, what the hell was going on at two in the morning with this guy. But out, over the course of a couple of weeks that settled down and then things just started to feel normal and everything else was fine. And my emotions were coming back and we're starting to talk about having a kid and, you know, it's, it's all pretty typical in that sense. And I'm reengaging in my church activity. So that's all good, but I'm still not talking about anything about what happened and I don't want to, right. It's just nice to do it normal. Uh, so then we leave California for another job in another place. And I intend in this new place, we're going to buy a house and I want to put down roots. It was one of the places it was where I, it was not far from where I lived when we moved out of Utah. And I loved living there as a child, you know, even though it was weird non-Mormon territory, I loved living there as a child. So uh, while I was there, I was beginning to think I need to recommit to this life and family more so. Spend more time with Catherine, spend more time with our kids. I'm not great at this, but I was in this phase where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to double down on all of these life commitments and the church and everything else harder. And... I was telling her, this is what I want, and things were going really well, and I thought it was all behind me, and I don't, you know, I don't know what to make of it. Maybe some of it was real, maybe it won't, but someday this will make sense. And, you know, in the course of a year, this is around 2004, over the course of that year, I started to notice God came back in my prayers, and I thought to myself, okay, here it comes. You know, last time I got myself in a lot of trouble because I panicked and I couldn't deal with the anxiety of I've lost my mind and I'm just not going to do that this time. I'm just going to accept that this is part of my lived experience and I can keep it to myself or I can share it, but there's no point in suffering through trying to keep this bottled up in me. You weren't going to fight it. You were just submitting yeah, to it. I just can yeah. accept it. Uh, and... It was a gentle experience at first on the way back, and I didn't ever get any answers for how a pill could make that go away from God, <laughs> you know, no insights in that regard. I can remember thinking about uh, uh, maybe I went off track for a little while and now I'm back. Um, you just need like a timeout and now it's back yeah, to Rod of Aaron. I can recover this. And hey, by the way, like the year 2000 went by and the world didn't end. Maybe that's because I wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. So you're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. So. Uh, do they increase? Do they get more intense? They did. So it cranked up over the course of the next few years. By, you know, 2008, 2009, it was as intense as it had ever been with people and voices and everything else. But I was, I just kept my career going and I went to church and. You know, I, like I just kept it away from everybody and um, I didn't really talk to her about it either. And as it intensified, some really weird things came back that were hard for me to deal with. You know, God began to challenge me in certain ways again, only now, you know, I'm married. So, you know, there's not the same pressures about sexuality and I'm a full adult taking care of myself and I 
don't really have to be beholden to anybody and I have my own private spaces and I have my kids and I'm good with my church activity and I'm active in my calling. So, so I like, I'm not putting off markers that I have to be nervous around other people around with my behavior, but God is telling me about how this is coming back on. I'm still the rod. At one point I send a letter to one of my stake presidents and I tell him, Hey, look, man, I, I just need to talk to somebody about this, and you're one of my authorities. And I've I've been worried that this runs against the grain of the church, and I don't know what it means, but it's just ever it's been present in my life for a long time. This is what I think God is telling me. This is a little bit about what the experience is like. Can you like can you help me? I think if this is really from God, you can help me confirm this, right? And if it's not from God or I'm doing something wrong, you can help me with that. Uh, he came down to my ward, you know, from some distance and we sat for a couple hours one night and talked and I could tell he was pretty nervous about this. One of the things he told me was, Aaron, I'm not a theologian, so I don't know what to make of half the stuff you've written in here and told me, (laughs) you know, like, like I, I, I went into some detail about what I thought I was going to do and how this was going to play out. If I ever got to like prophesying for other people, you know, it was quietly on paper like this, but it was explicit. (laughs) Well, did this is what I want to ask you. Did did God ever ask you to practice polygamy? And before you answer, I feel like I'm going to guess that he says yes, because God, Mormons have to contend with this. And people that I know that experience any sort of level of this, it for males, it goes to polygamy. And for women, it usually goes to their mothering or something like that. And so mm-hmm. was God asking you stuff like that, theological things like that. So around this point in time, after I'd talked to the stake president, he didn't really have many answers, and I'm walking away disappointed. Around this point in time, God tells me that uh, part of this process is restoration, and that I am going to have a polygamous afterlife. And the way, and like, it didn't resolve itself all up front. It's going to start by marrying somebody. And he pointed out who it was. And this really bothered me uh, because like, it seemed inappropriate, this particular person. And well, and that's what I want to point out to people that I've heard talk about this. I, I asked you earlier about the OCD thing, because now that I understand OCD. It runs in my family. Like sometimes the thing you are the most afraid of and you, you ruminate on. And and like I said, how women focus on their children. A lot of us Mormon women, we don't talk about this, but with postpartum, we have these fears of harming our baby or these visions of harming our baby. And they're so horrific to us that we just keep ruminating on it. I didn't know that word in that context at the time, but I learned that later and it is a perfect word, ruminate. Just you can't, it's intrusive and you can't stop thinking about it and tell And you don't want it, but you're worried that you're thinking about it. So you might want it. You don't know. Yeah, that's right. You might want it. And then like back to the earlier experience I'd had, I, you know, even though I had accepted, I wasn't crazy at some level, I was still torn. Like this, this isn't right, but I'm supposed to accept it. And this is a matter of faith and courage and it's supposed to be hard. But like, what if this is just some impulse of mine that I'm naming God, you know? So it was not, now it, was, it wasn't, I'm crazy. It was, I may, what if I'm using this experience I'm having to justify bad behavior and I don't know it or justify thoughts I shouldn't be having and I don't know it. So first I learn this is a person I'm supposed to marry and I can't figure out how the hell that's going to happen because the church doesn't condone this stuff. And Catherine sure as hell isn't going to accept this, you know, and I'm struggling with this and a few other things at the time. And 
really just starting to feel torn up again. My health never got as bad, you know, in this phase as it had before, but it's really impacting my sense of well-being and my health in a number of ways. And I am kind of suffering through this at church and other things. And at the same time this is happening, I'm getting into church history. And, you know, for me, for a lot of people reading church history when they're faithful is this troubling experience. For me, church history was awesome. The warts and all church history, because I could read in sacred loneliness and rough stone rolling and the beginnings of Mormonism and, you know, all these other books. And I could read journals of some of my pioneer ancestors on my mom's side and they were having these magical experiences and it was chaos. And, you know, and, and they were accepting some of this as this is how it's supposed to be and writing other parts off as crazy. And one of the things you and I haven't talked about is I would occasionally encounter other people that I, you know, I think thought of themselves as like spiritual giants in some way. And unless they were like a general authority, I was writing those people off. It's me. It's me. I'm the one that knows this stuff. You don't know anything, right? And, you know, I, I, I basically began to realize that this is the old church, and the church we have right now is dry and dusty and boring and not animated, and this is one of those things that's going to come back. And I'm just happy to feel it. You know, it would be a lot easier if everybody else felt it. I, I had a few people in my life at that point in time that I actually sent these books to because I loved them so much and they were so faith affirming for me because, hey, if it was real for them, right, it's that... You finally felt less alone. They're my peeps, right? Yeah. Joseph Smith, big asshole that he was, you know, having the revelation, starting the church, the chaos, like he's doing what I did. And you know what? I can cut him a lot of slack because I know what it's like to be caught up in that you know, in that just wrecking machine psychologically of do this, do that, you know, and you don't know if it's your own impulse and you, you're, you're trying to hold yourself up to the world. Like, you know, I got this and I'm with God and you know, there's something wrong at some level, you know, this isn't quite working, but you can keep tweaking it and tweaking the people around you and your own frame of yourself and kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm casting back into it from my, from my view of it today when I say this part, but you can trick yourself, okay? You can, you can basically convince yourself that somehow this is how it's supposed to be, even though it's messy. You can write. Well, to, to say it another way, I think sometimes our brains are always looking for evidence to confirm what we know, right? Uh, they, they say confirmation bias is inherent in our species because so true. we need to be right so we can survive. We need to make the right decision so we can survive. So we're always looking for evidence that our impulses are backed up by. Yeah. And I needed to be right so that this whole experience could be right, so the church could be right, so I could be right, so I could accept that this wasn't just some stupid psychological disorder, that it wasn't the pill, you know, uh, that I was that special, you know, that, that somehow this whole experience was justified. And so... So how did it end for you? How did that all yeah, so, change? So, so I mentioned earlier, I'm sending books to people that I know and love, and they're leaving the church, and I'm so disappointed. And I'm sharing bits and pieces of this with uh, Catherine and other people around me, and they're wondering what's going on. I, I was one of those Sunday school teachers by this point in time that you know some chunk of the war just loved because I was such a provocateur with the lessons and the doctrine and some other chunk just were very destabilized the way that I would present things. I wasn't out telling them new prophecy, 
but I was forcing him to come to grips with like the scriptures that were. I was forcing him to come to grips with the idea of like chopping somebody's head off because God told you to. Like really, people, you were in this lesson and Nephi did it. If we're going to liken the scriptures unto ourselves, what would you do if God asked you to do that, right? Like, Yeah, and, and really you're exploring your own questions, right? Yes, the I own am. limits of your own ethics right. and morals. That's right, and I, I used to ask people periodically a question without letting them in on what was going on, but hey, you're a Christian believer, you believe in Abraham, you know? So let's just say you're driving to work one day and an angel pops up in the seat next to you, or Jesus does, or something like that, and he tells you all these things, and you know, after a period of time, you're pretty sure this is real and it's divine, and you can't just wave it away, and you wonder if it's your mind or not, but God keeps telling you it's real, and you've got something that you think qualifies as evidence, and then he tells you you need to kill your neighbors or kill your family, and it's a commandment. What are you going to do? This is God talking to you. You accept this. What's the right answer to you at this point? Well, you know, I would watch people that I would ask this question, contemplate it, thrash on it a bit. The vast majority of them said, you know what, in the end, I just wouldn't do it. I would say no. You know, God, I, I'm that crosses my moral boundary. I am unwilling to do it. And I would tell them, so, I mean, that basically means you're not as faithful. I mean, you're telling me that you're unwilling to do it. That means you're not as faithful. Can you accept that about yourself? And I didn't want to push them into doing some abhorrent moral act, but... No, but you were grappling with this yourself, right? Like you were... And and so that's why I want to talk about Julie Rowe as promised in just a minute, but Tell us how it sort of ends for you, and then I want to let's yeah. sort of okay. So dig into the so context. We're skipping over a few things here, uh, but um, one of the things that was you know somewhat trivial in the whole scheme relative to like polygamy and everything else is God told me the way that the polygamy thing that was going to work out was Catherine was going to die in a certain period of time, and I'll be honest with you, Lindsay. When I when I saw in the I debated on when I should talk about this in my life, if now was the right time, when I should share any of this publicly. But when I saw in those news stories about uh, Chad Daybell saying his wife was going to die, like that this is a critical part of the story, something clicked in me. And I thought, I don't think me telling the story is going to fix this, but there, there is really clear evidence that somebody else went through some kind of similar experience, only they took it someplace that like we all know is morally abhorrent. And I don't know. Well, and and that's why I want to say this too. Like you are not the only one that has experienced this. I've heard the story over and over and over again. And I mean this, and I know some of you out there listening, death fantasies are what happens when the brain can't make sense of something when you've come to every other thing. And so like, if you're being asked to do horrible things, uh, polygamy or murder, who knows what God's telling you to do? It makes sense that you can't reconcile how how your beloved wife or whatever makes sense of this. And so your brain has to come up with it. It must mean that sh- she'll die. And and this happens to so many people. It happens to people who uh, are in unhappy relationships and they can't make sense of that. They can't actually take the actions to do that. It happens to people in good relationships who are so scared to lose it. It's happening in, I think in your case, probably because God was asking you, telling you, demanding challenging you to do things that you knew that you probably couldn't live with eventually. Yeah. And the way, the way that God presented this to me in this particular experience is, Hey, you know, 
I know I, I, I'm going to make this easier on you. You know, you don't have to reconcile that somehow you have to pull this off in the modern day with a church that rejects this behavior and people that will reject it. The way this is going to work out, partially to address your weakness, Aaron, is, uh, you know, that's asshole God again. Um, partially to address your own weakness in this is Catherine's going to die. And I, I was 27, and I was reading something in my Doctrine and Covenants. I drew some correlation between something in Joseph Smith's life and mine that it was going to be 12 years away, right? So that's a good long time to stew on this. And and to probably come out sideways in all kinds of weird Yeah, and weird ways. Like she would take the kids and go on trips or go somewhere for a while by herself and... I would begin to feel panic that this is it. This, that I, I just saw her for the last time, you know, uh, or she's going to get cancer and we're going to have to suffer through that. Or, you know, I, like I'm normally not the sort of person that really needs to be with people or even feels a lot of sadness or loneliness when I'm not around people I love. But I was just, I was very torn up at the idea that at some point she has to die to make this work. And it's my fault and yeah. like every, every day, every one of these moments could be the moment. And I didn't tell her about this either at the time. Um, one of the other things in order to kind of you know, speed this up and bring it to closure for this part, one of the other things that God was, God was starting to test me and tell me to do all these things that I didn't think were quite right, but they were basically placed in me as tests of faith and whether or not I could believe enough in my connection with God whether my faith was strong enough that I could ignore everything else and just do what he asked. Abrahamic tests. Yeah, basically Abrahamic tests. And at one point God told me I should look at porn on the internet. Right. <laughs> and like I flagged on this for a while. I don't want to do that. Okay. I just got to, I've heard this from missionaries all the time, yeah. like that are having visions. Like God is like telling them you could find your future wife in, in one of these porn. Yeah. You could convert her. Like it's interesting what our yeah. mind does to make sense interesting of this. Interesting what our mind does. God didn't tell me anything like that. He just told me, I told you to do it. And I told you to masturbate afterwards. I told you, and I don't care how wrong it feels. That's the test. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. He wanted you to do things that were wrong. Yeah. And and then I was like, well, what am I supposed to tell Catherine? Uh, you know, basically, God didn't answer me on that. I guess I got to figure that out, right? And, you know, I, I, I could go back into this just for a moment, but every day I'm going to work and hearing voices and seeing people. Every day in my job, I'm juggling and now you're successful. Yeah, I'm uh, successful. And if guy. anybody that were my peers in this world had any idea that this is happening real time all the time with me, you know, like my business meetings are full of extra people, you know, <laughs> my tech work and some of the advice I have on how to implement some of the solutions to my engineering problems, the judgment calls I'm making are coming from, uh, I don't know. Nephi. Yeah. Moroni. Right. Uh, <laughs> Like I, I, I came to terms with it. And on the other hand, like it was just bonkers and the level of weird that it got to that I just swallowed and swallowed and swallowed. Cause you were going to submit, you were not going to go back to that chaos right. that you had felt before. That's right. And so, you know, I looked at the porn and I did the thing and then I felt horrible and God's like, good, do it again, do it again. 
You know, like I told you, I told you. And if I didn't do it, I would have those little spiritual attacks. And I, I am sitting there thinking, how the hell is this supposed to work? I am supposed to be unworthy. God is telling me to do something. It's supposed to drive all this stuff away. But if I don't do it, things go away. And this is fascinating to me because as we talk about through this this podcast, we've got folks like the Lafferty's who, you yeah. know, they, they talk about sometimes God asks you to do hard things. It's like this Laban scripture that has done so much damage to people who have these prophetic visions. Because if you open the door, I, I was talking to you about this earlier, not to compare your situation to Warren Jeffs at all, but I fundamentally believe he probably was attracted to prepubescent children. I think he was a pedophile for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And he felt the urges so strongly. And yet he knew so strongly he was chosen that he couldn't reconcile the difference. And so that what what made sense was to use the doctrine to justify his his feelings and i think it what it, it wasn't that you want you had these inclinations but you were having this guilt and so you were using the doctrine to make sense of that and that's why i think your story is fascinating because why didn't you turn into a Dan Lafferty? Why didn't you turn into a Warren Jess like and and even Julie Rowe people give her a lot of a lot of scorn but I'm like, there's a woman who's trying to not turn her doctrine dark, even though That's right. you have all of this. That's right. I mean, it, what you talk about, how God's like desensitizing you to, to do yep. things you should feel bad about. And the way that, that it happened to you, I think is so fascinating. I think our tradition should be paying more attention to things like this. Yeah. And again, if you know our history well enough, you know God did this with other divine you know, callings with, with other prophets, you know, he told Brigham Young about blood atonement. You know, you can say that was Brigham Young's mistake. You know, he told Joseph Smith to lie to people for polygamy. You know about the bank in Kirtland, you know, like you just know all of these things in Old Testament and church history that are straight up justifications for bad behavior that you don't get in Sunday school. But if you study it well enough, you do this. And I think some people that end up in that extreme sort of fundamental end of things, they get deep like I did. Well, and that's what, that's, I remembered what my point I was making with Warren Jeffs. I remember asking Roy, his son, like, how do you think your dad made sense of some of the horrific doctrines that he ended up enacting, you know? And he said that his dad would often quote that quote attributed to Joseph Smith, which is, there are some things that are, that if you even knew that God has asked me to do, you would kill me because they're so crazy to hear about, right? Mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But um, once you have that theological door open, that Laban's head door open, that Abraham's door open, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because here we see for years and years and years, you are fighting and fighting and fighting. And the fighting is the turmoil. And finally you submit. Mm -hmm. And God's still creating this conflict for you, right? God, I'm using God um, in air quotes. But at the time you thought it was God still. When did you finally stop believing it was God? Yeah, so I'm going through all this turmoil. It's starting to bring me down. I'm I'm in my early 30s and um, I'm laying in bed one night. It's... Aaron, you know, I told you to go look at that porn. Now look at this weird shit, right? And I am feeling so dishonest, so dirty. So like if Catherine knew any of this, you know, uh, and I'm supposed to lie about this and I'm keeping all these secrets. And you know what? I'm like, I'm 
to holding a calling down. I, like, I, I don't understand. Why does this have to be? And, you know, I had an epiphany. It, it felt, you know, when I think about it now, it doesn't seem like much. But in the moment I had it, it was this really just sort of deep, intense, like poignant moment. I basically am laying there in one of our, you know, extra bedrooms in the house in the dark, like wrestling with what to do about this. Uh, you know, go go break the rules so you can prove your faith. And I I just sort of go through this sequence in my head. It's like fast forward all these things I can recollect about, you know, all these different prophets that got asked to do these things in all these different circumstances. And it's like, it's like this rapid fire review in, you know, seconds, you know, a minute of like all these people that asked to do this and what the outcome was. And, and the thing that hit me as an epiphany is, you know what, in every one of those cases, human moral standards played no part of it. And God's ultimate tests for us are that we'll basically pervert our own sense of morality and justice. That's part of the test, that this God doesn't have that human moral code, that he holds his code out to the church and all these other people in the world because they can't take it and the world would go into chaos. And that's a lesson we learned from watching you know, early church founders go through that thrash and destroy their communities and then do it again and again and again. And so it's a personal kind of purity test. But the conclusion I suddenly reach is this is what God expects you to do to grow you. And it doesn't matter how awful it is because there is eternity and there is your calling. And this is just a speck in that time frame, and none of it matters. The only thing that matters is you do what God tells you to do because he knows how you need to grow. And, you know, it hit me with a lot of force. It, it doesn't as much. It doesn't really at all now, but I can kind of tap that feeling that I had. And right as I have this epiphany, for some strange reason, uh, all of the voices and the visions all said in like a chorus right on cue, I guess you don't need us anymore. And they just disappeared. And I just laid there and thought, what happened? I Like, I don't feel anything anymore. And I called my oldest brother, who'd been out of the church for a long time, but I used to talk to him about some of this experience I was having. You know, we, we would trade back and forth. He was interested in this, and he didn't condemn me for it. He was just, it was just sort of, I think, a fascinating discussion for him. And and I could talk to him about some of what I knew, and I could talk to him about the difficult parts of church history and the moral problems and the theological issues that, that were what sort of drove him out of the church. And I could embrace them and talk to him about it and say, but I'm still in, and I'm in because God talks to me all the time, Jared, and I don't know why, but I didn't tell him about all the crazy, but a little bit. And, uh, you know, I called him and I said, hey, I just want you to know, last night, this thing happened and it all disappeared. And I don't know why, but I feel like I need to record this with a couple of people. I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't, I don't know what's going to go on in my life. Like this just, this is a very sudden turn. I can't make sense of it. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it won't. I'll check in with you from time to time. And it didn't come back and it didn't come back. And, you know, at some point, give or take a few months, about a year later, 
I was reading a, another Mormon history book. This is Greg Prince's on David O. McKay. And I don't know why entirely I judge things this way, but I know that I did. You know, there's a lot in that book that is uh, church leaders contending with the issues and the doctrines of the day and fighting with each other over it and manipulating each other. And, uh, you know, and they're just caught up in the wash, just like you would have seen with earlier church leaders. It's just, it's sort of shrouded from us. It's not, you know, you can't see it to the same degree of depth until somebody writes a book like that. And, you know, one of the, as you and I had spoken earlier, one of the things that always I had the hardest time with accepting our church or the people in our church was this piety and manipulation that people would combine to have control over one another, that, you know, leaders would abuse it. Um, I think, you know, when I think about how things were with my parents and their kids, the the difficult, the more toxic parts of our relationships when that came up, and it was prevalent sometimes, was really around the same premise, right? Is we're going to use our piety to control you in very emotionally destructive ways, and we don't care because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, I'd already had this whole buildup of disgust over that whole dilemma, only now it was gone, it was in hindsight, it wasn't there every day, I wasn't feeling challenged by it. And as I'm reading this book, all I can think to myself is, you know, this is exactly what I was taught about the great apostasy. This is how a church falls apart. This is how, uh, this is proof that a church has become corrupt. And in a week, reading this book, I went from, I'm in and I believe all of this, to I just don't believe any of it. And I was super angry. Um, I thought about how much I'd suffered trying to keep all this up and hold it together so that all these old guys could just fight with each other over who had the power and lie to their members. And I could give Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and other people a pass because they were having these vivid spiritual experiences, but these dudes weren't. You know, most of these dudes weren't having anything like that kind of car. Yeah, they were very bureaucratic bureaucratic assholes, right? Well, then how did you make sense of God talking to you? Was it still... God to you uh, at this point? You know, it was just gone, right? At like, it was gone, it was distant, and I didn't know what to make of why it had disappeared. And like, it didn't factor into what was right in front of me reading this book. Except that you can recall I'd always had that impulse that something is wrong with this church we have today and it's got to change. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't think about it exactly this way back then, but I can tell you now, like sort of summing it up, well, here it is right in front of my face. It's still all wrong in some sense, only I don't have... But now you didn't need voices to yeah. test you or whatever. You just yeah. you just knew for yourself. Like 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 those voices said, uh, perhaps they were serving as a, as a bell yeah. alarm Look to the dissonance you were feeling. Look what these guys do to people with less intensity trying to follow probably less of a voice less vividly than I do look what they do to people like we don't even need God's voice to make people do mean things to each other or or if that if that is God like they're still screwing it up because there's no revelation there's no meaningful revelation they're abusing people they're wasting money they're manipulating people it's cruel to what gain so this so they can keep cranking out more and more members doing this dry, boring, 
you know, like, like just, just add up the numbers kind of game so they can do baseball baptisms. Like they've ruined it. And I, it's not that I stopped believing in God altogether at this point, but I went briefly fundamentalist. I briefly said to myself over the course of a few months, okay, where did I get it wrong? Back up the train. Where in our church progression, you know, where in this evolution did this go off the tracks? I know this history. I've read a ton of it. I've studied it. I've thought about it. What did I miss? And so here's what happened. You know, the reason I say I went briefly fundamentalist is I could have found something to grab onto, you know, that people do, you know, that's, I think that's how people end up in all kinds of, you know, uh, adjacent movements. Okay. Is they find something that makes sense to them again, that they can use to make this thing coherent. But as I went back through the history, you know, I went backwards. I went from, you know, instead of starting over at Joseph Smith and forwards, I went backwards. I couldn't find a spot where I could grab onto. And by the time I got to Joseph Smith, I was like, uh, you're an abusive asshole too, <laughs> right? And I, I can have some sympathy for maybe how you got there, right? Maybe you got caught up in this too. Maybe it was like me, but you know, like this is gone. I've had it gone before. I'm happier. The people around me are happier. There's less suffering in the world. Like I just don't see how this adds up or creates any benefit for me in my life with my people. All of the suffering has not come from sin and drinking and all the rest of that stuff. We live in a better world, most of us in that sense, in my circles, in a place where we should all, where we have everything we need to be happier and more at peace and better to each other. What is driving us to just treat each other and ourselves so terribly is this belief system. The pressure, the the fakeness, the falsity, all the stuff that you'd been grappling yeah, with. Yeah, trying to make it work, trying to force it to work, trying to use it to manipulate other people so they can make it work. You know, uh, just I I just remember thinking uh, maybe some of these people got into this for the same reasons I did, and then they got carried away with it, and I just didn't find myself in those circumstances. But I don't have to repeat this. And in fact, I'm not going to repeat it. I'm just done. And, you know, I think we could, it's not for the purpose of this conversation. We could talk about what it's like to, you know, sort of fall off that ledge into where I am now. Well, I'd like to, can we stop this and we'll do one more, like, so let's end, let's end here. And then on our next, we'll make this part three and let's part three. I just want, I wanted to talk about where you are now and I want to talk about profits in general. Does that sound good? The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.